We are now going to turn to some of the most ancient of all the words in the scriptures in the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 33. So turn to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 33. And I want to read to you beginning in verse 26. Deuteronomy 33, 26. These are the words of Moses. There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. He drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security the fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread on their high places. Father, we... Uh, Pray that we will come, as we sang, with open hearts to let these words speak to us. Your words speak comfort and help and fortitude and faith to our souls. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The eternal God, verse 27, is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. That's been a very precious promise to me in recent months, not necessarily because I have been in a great deal of difficulty and needed to be reminded of its comfort myself, but because several of you have, and I've been able to share this verse with you and with others outside of our congregation as well. I think I've written this particular verse of Scripture, Deuteronomy 33:27, in more notes and more emails than any other portion of Scripture in these recent fall and winter months. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. It's been kind of a theme verse for me uh, as I've tried to minister and counsel and help others, and so I thought it might be helpful to take a Sunday morning and preach from it. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Those words are tailor-made, aren't they, for seasons of uncertainty and difficulty. What a help it can be to picture God's everlasting arms bearing us up like a father holding his child when the details of life are unsettled and uncertain. In fact, that's exactly the kind of situation for which these words were first spoken and written down by Moses. Deuteronomy 33, 27 was originally spoken and written for an hour of trial. Uh, We know that for several reasons. There are hints of it, of course, in the very words of verse 27 itself. The whole idea that God's people needed God to be their dwelling place hints at the fact that there was something difficult going on outside. They needed to go into a dwelling place because there was uncertainty outside. And the same can be said of the portrait of God's arms beneath his people. Why would they have needed to hear that God's arms were beneath them unless something was happening that made them a little bit worried that they might stumble and fall? 
So we can see from the very words themselves in verse 27 that they are written to people who are feeling a little insecure, who are facing various trials, who are in difficulty of some kind. And if we back up into the first verse of Deuteronomy 33, we'll understand partly what that difficulty was. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. Moses spoke the words that we read and all of the words of Deuteronomy 33 before his death. He was about to die. This man who had led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, this man who had walked with God like no one had ever walked with God, this man, verse 5, who was functioning as king in Jeshurun, king in Israel, this man who had been the prophet to God's people for four decades and who had also served in many ways as their great high priest. So much of God's guidance for his people for those years after years in the wilderness had been mediated to them through this one man. In fact, aside from Caleb and Joshua, none of the Israelites who were about to enter the promised land in the very next book of the Bible, two chapters from now, none of these Israelites had really ever known any other leader. And now, in Deuteronomy 32, uh, Moses announces that he's departing from them. Much like we saw Jesus announcing the same thing to his disciples last week in John 13. And although the ministry and the departure of Jesus were far more significant than the ministry and departure of Moses, I think we can still understand that when Moses announced that he was soon to die, the Israelites must have felt like something like, something like the apostles at the departure of Jesus. All sorts of questions. We've been following this man for all these years, and now he's going to be gone? What will the future hold? Who will go forth as our leader? Will we be able to conquer the Canaanites without Moses as our field general? Will the next leader be as administratively astute as Moses has been? Will we still hear from God the way that God has spoken to us through Moses? All of these questions, all of these doubts were surely swirling through the air in these final chapters in Deuteronomy as Moses prepared to die. It was a great time of uncertainty and apprehension. And in addition to the loss of their prophet, priest, and king, the people of God also knew that they were about to cross the Jordan and face the swords and the spears of the Canaanites, whose land they were to inherit. And more than that, as Moses warned them back in chapter 32, which we haven't read but would serve you well to read, Moses warned them, when you go into the land, you're not only going to face their swords and spears, you're going to come face to face with their idols, and you're going to be tempted to have a God that you can see, a God that you can touch, and to fall down and worship the gods of the Canaanites. So there is great difficulty in front of them. They're losing their leader. They're going into battle, and they're facing great temptation. These were very uneasy times for God's Old Testament people. Everything was about to change. And from a human perspective, there was great uncertainty as to whether it would turn out well at all. And so Moses in his great and final act as leader of God's people, gave them one last speech. In chapter 32, he warned them of all the danger that was ahead of them in the form of temptation to worship the idols of the Canaanites. And here in chapter 33, he blessed them 
He reminded them of God's good designs for his covenant people. Incidentally, those are the two great tasks of any leader among God's people. Warning the people of God of the perils of sin, but also reminding them of all the covenant blessings that God promises to his people. And Moses was faithful in his final days, both to warn chapter 32 and in this chapter to bless the people of God. And this morning we're going to focus particularly on the blessing, as you've already seen. And if you'll just scan over chapter 33 with me, you'll see that this blessing, of which we're just looking at a sliver, came to the people in three parts from Moses' lips. In verses 2 through 5, Moses looked at the past and he reminded them of God's blessing to them these last 40 years. How God had given them their law, how he'd spoken them through through Moses uh, himself, and how he'd been with them and he'd bared them up. So verses 2 through 5 are a look into the past. Then verses 6 through 25, the bulk of the chapter, are taken up with Moses pronouncing specific blessings on the various tribes of Israel. So you see there's a blessing for Reuben in verse 6, and Judah in verse 7, and Levi beginning in verse 8, and so on, down through verse 25. Each tribe blessed. And then in verses 26 through 29, the verses we read, we find an announcement, a final reminder, the final words from Moses' lips of God's blessing, God's goodness, God's trustworthiness toward his people in their time of need. And these are beautiful and poetic and powerful verses at the end of chapter 33. There is none like the God of Jeshurun, the God of Israel, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. Or verse 29, who is like you, O Israel, a people saved by the Lord? It's an amazing thing, reminding them that God will be with them. But to me, the centerpiece of this blessing, the highlight of it is verse 27. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. What a tremendous support those words can be to people like the Israelites who are in times of uncertainty and distress and difficulty and worry and fear. Some of you may be facing those same kind of giants even this morning. You're not going over into battle, perhaps, but maybe you are facing temptation like the Israelites faced. Maybe you're not losing Moses, but you are facing uncertainty. Maybe there's some physical difficulty that makes you feel uncertain. Maybe there are the gray clouds of bereavement hanging over you for many many long months now, perhaps. There may be troubles in the realm of your family or financial uncertainty or strife at work. All sorts of things put us in the very position that the Israelites are in, wondering how this is going to turn out. And so often we find that the words of Job are apropos, do we not? Our days, Job said, are few and filled with trouble. Don't you sometimes feel like that? Our days are few and they are filled with trouble. So many things seem to go wrong from our perspective. And yet it's also true in the midst of the trouble that the eternal God is a dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And I hope Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-seven will pro- uh, prove a balm and a support 
to you if your soul is trembling for one reason or other this morning. Others of you, as I've said many times before, will need to hide this verse in your heart for later use because you're not facing great trial now. Things are moving along pretty smoothly for you, but someday you will. And when you do, you will need to keep these words of blessing and others like them in your medicine chest, as it were, to pull out and massage in like ointment when the difficulty arises, and it surely will. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Put that in your file. These are truths in this brief sentence uh, that will rescue us in times of great need. And there are three truths in particular in this sentence that I think will provide us with the most comfort and sweet support in uncertain and difficult days. Three truths that I want you to see this morning. The first is simply that our God is eternal. Our God is eternal. What does Moses say? The eternal God is a dwelling place. Now sometimes when we read the Bible, we find a word like eternal or almighty or holy set down as a prefix to God's name, and we're tempted to just bypass it as though it had a little more significance than the word Mr. or Mrs. in front of our names. The eternal God is a, is a dwelling place. Okay, well, God's eternal, of course, and, and that's part of the deal. No, the biblical writer didn't put this here simply as a prefix or for poetic effect. I know it sounds better, doesn't it? It sounds more expressive and graceful and colorful, not just to say God is a dwelling place, but the eternal God is a dwelling place. But I assure you that that's not the reason why Moses added this extra word here, simply for lyrical effect, no. Moses calls our Lord the eternal God because he means every word of what he's saying and he wants the people to think about every word that he's saying. And so we breeze past the word eternal to our own spiritual malnourishment. This is not just a rhetorical flourish designed to make the verse more elegant. Moses is presenting the eternality of God as part of the blessing, part of the solution for the trials and the uncertainty that his people are facing. We can face uncertainty, we can face anxiety, we can face fear and not lose heart precisely because God is eternal. This word is important. The eternal God is a dwelling place. And I just want to ask, why is it important? How does the fact of God's eternality help us cope with trials and fears? Why did Moses feel the need to remind the people that God is eternal? How is that supposed to help them? Well, I think the fact that God is eternal is meant to help the Israelites and us see our own difficulties in proper scale. In proper scale. Now that was especially true in the situation that Israel was facing. Remember, Moses was about to die. Moses has led us for 40 years. Moses is the only leader most of us have ever known in our adult lives. Moses has been the mouthpiece of God. Moses has been the king. Moses has been the judge. Moses has been the priest. Moses has been everything to us that that you could want in a human leader. And now he's going away. Yeah, Moses is temporary. But Moses is not our dwelling place. God is. And the God who is our dwelling place is the eternal God. Do you see? 
Moses is saying this for a reason. I am temporary. I am just for a moment. I am like the flowers of the field that fade away. I'm going to go up on the mountain and you will see me no more. But God is eternal. God will be with you when I am gone. God was with you before I ever came out of the wilderness to bring you out of Egypt. And God will be with you when I am gone. God is eternal. Leaders are temporary. It's the same thing in Isaiah 6, isn't it? You remember Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, this king who had been leader for decades like Moses, not as great as Moses, but had led God's people for decades and been a great king, he's dead. What's going to happen now? Well, I don't know what's going to happen now, but I do know that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was still alive. God is eternal. And our problems are put into scale when we remember that. And sometimes in a different way. When we're in the midst of some trial, it may not be that some person that we've relied upon is gone, although that can be true. But it may just be sometimes that our difficulty seems larger than life. Don't you sometimes have difficulties that seem like they're too big to conquer, too painful to bear? The shadows will never flee away. The long night of suffering will never give way to dawn. You can't get it out of your mind. Suffering and fear and uncertainty have a way of consuming us, don't they? But it helps to remember the bigness of God, doesn't it? Seeing God in all his grand scale cuts our problems back down to size. So when we face various trials, we need to remember, for instance, the bigness of God's power. That there is no mountain so big that he can't lift it, as it were, with his pinky finger. That there's no giant so great that he cannot fell it with one small, smooth stone. It also helps when our difficulties seem larger than life to remember the bigness of God's wisdom. That he's doing a thousand things behind the scenes that we cannot see. And every single one of them is for the good of his people. And so focusing on the bigness of God in attributes like his wisdom or his power cuts our problems back down to size. Reminds us of how small they really are. Remembering the bigness of God helps us see our difficulties in proper scale. And Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy 33.27 that God's eternality is part of that equation, part of that bigness that helps us see our problems in the right scale. Job was right now. Our days in this life are full of trouble so many times. But remember what else he said there in Job 14.1. Our days are few and full of trouble. That's important to remember. However difficult our days may be, they're comparatively few. Our afflictions, Paul said, are momentary. Now, I know it doesn't seem that way when we're dealing with chronic pain or when we're waiting on the results of the medical tests or when we've gone for months without steady work. But Paul says that these troublesome days in our lives are actually quite momentary. How can he say that? When it seems like they're forever. Because he's looking at his troubles and ours as well in the light of the eternal God of Deuteronomy 33. 
Think this out for a few moments. The eternality of God. And then let it shape how big you think your problems may be. God. The God about whom Moses speaks in Deuteronomy 33. The God to whom you must run in your time of trouble. Never had a beginning. That's one of the most difficult things in the Bible for me to understand. There are a lot of difficult things that I can sort of piece together and at least make a little bit of sense. But how can it be that God, that there's anything in the world that never had a beginning? We can't fathom that, but God never had a beginning. Isn't that what Genesis 1-1 says? In the beginning, God. There was a beginning. There was a beginning to all that we see. But when that beginning began, God was already there. When the world sprang into being, when breath was given to mankind, when the ancient mountains pushed themselves out of the ground, when the sun and the moon and stars were created, even before the existence of the formless and void earth that we read about in Genesis 1-2, before anything of these things existed, God existed. And he never had a beginning. In the beginning, God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For an infinite eternity beyond the beginning, God was God. I'm tempted to to say something like, God existed for billions and billions of ages before there was ever such a thing as the universe. But even a statement like that would be woefully inadequate and really incorrect because for one thing no matter how many billions of ages I could stack on top of one another trying to describe how far back God goes I could never pile up enough to equal forever could I we don't have enough numbers even to count that high and even if we created new numbers to keep counting back into eternity past we'd never finish counting we'd have to keep creating new numbers and new numbers god never had a, a beginning and then to make matters even more mind-boggling i'm not even sure that we can say that before god created the universe before god created matter there even was such a thing as time as we now know it so there's no way for us to adequately envision all that is entailed in these three simple English words in Deuteronomy 33:27, the eternal God. And we must say that not only as we look back in the eons before our world began, but also as we look out into a never-ending future that the Bible describes when this world is no more. God had no beginning and he will have no end. He is, as Moses says simply, the eternal God. We can't wrap our minds around that fully and describe it adequately, but what we can do is take what we do understand and and the little slice of God's eternality that we do know and compare that to our doubts and our fears and our sorrows. Doesn't it put it all in perspective? It may seem sometimes like the difficulties will never end, but compared to the eternality of God, our Heavenly Father, they are but momentary and their days are but few. And I don't say that your sufferings aren't nearly as big as you think as a kind of slap on the hand. Can't you see that your sufferings are really minor and brief? Suck it up. Quit your belly aching. That's not my point this morning. Although sometimes we may need to hear that. 
I'm simply pointing out the eternality of God this morning and therefore the relatively short-lived nature of our trials in order to say there is hope. God is bigger, much, much bigger than our worries and our fears and our trials. God was God and His wisdom was perfect and His promises were true for infinite ages before your trials came upon you. And He will still be God and He will still be true and He will still be faithful when these few days and full of trouble are complete. And so we mustn't allow ourselves to be overthrown by the here and now. We have an eternal God in whom we may find our peace and our perspective and our home. Now that last word, that God is our eternal home, brings us to the second truth that needs taking up here in Deuteronomy 33, 27. We've noted how we may be helped to cope with life's trials by remembering that our God is eternal, but we're also helped if we notice, secondly, that our God is, according to Moses, a dwelling place. Our God, the eternal God, is a dwelling place. Now, some translations render it the eternal God is a refuge. A refuge. And so we might picture a citadel or a fortress into which we can run when we're in trouble. And of course, the Bible gives us warrant to think of God that way. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in and they are safe. But the refuge that Moses seems to have in mind here is not so much a citadel, but a home. Not so much a hiding place as a dwelling place. The eternal God is a dwelling place. He's our home. He's our abode. Do you ever think of God that way? It's not one of the main pictures in the Bible. The main pictures are that God is Father, God is King, and so on. But do you ever picture God as your home? As your place of shelter and rest? As the place to which you retreat at the end of long and difficult trials? That's how He wants you to view Him. The eternal God is a dwelling place. And when you're suffering, when you're under duress, when Satan is flinging his arrows at you, there's no place like finding your home in God. In fact, let me mention a few ways in which this metaphor, God as our dwelling place, can support our souls on the cloudy and difficult days. One picture that a dwelling place evokes, a home evokes, is that of shelter. We all want a roof over our heads because the roof provides shelter from the rain, from the cold, from those who would do us harm. And what this verse invites us to do is to run into the person of God the same way that we run into our house when the raindrops begin to fall or the thunder begins to clap. God is a dwelling place. He's a shelter from the storm. Very often, God's design is actually to shield you from the trouble you're facing, just like your house keeps the rain off of your head and the danger outside the door. Very often, God's plan is to protect you from the trouble, not even to let you pass through the waters. That's what He did so often with the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan. They were going over. They were facing a great many enemies and trials. And so often God was a shield about them. God was a dwelling place to keep the arrows at bay. And He kept them safe. 
And it's not wrong to run to God and ask him to do that for you. To be the roof over your head. To be the brick wall that prevents Satan's fiery darts from getting at you. To keep you from the hour of testing. And blot out your troubles. It's not wrong to ask God to do that. Sometimes, yes, it may be God's will for us to walk in the rain for a little while. Or for us to have to fend off the devil's arrows with our own shield of faith. But other times, if we would only run into the dwelling place, we'd be sheltered. If we'd only run to God in prayer, seeking his redress, he would protect us from the trials we're facing. He would remove the thorns from our sides and the pebbles from our shoes. And he would take us completely in out of the storm. The eternal God is a dwelling place, a shelter in the time of storm. And I urge you to seek him as such. Don't stand outside trying to combat the storm yourself. Run in to the shelter. But the picture of a dwelling place not only evokes thoughts of shelter, but also of comfort. The home is a shelter, but the home is also a comfort as I said, sometimes God doesn't shelter us completely. Sometimes he allows us to walk in the, in the rain for a season. Sometimes for wise purposes, he leads us out among the flying arrows. And you might be there this morning. You might feel like spiritually you're walking in the rain. Or because of some difficulty in life, you're in the midst of the crossfire. And God may want you to be there for a season. But let me ask you. When you're sick or when you're sad or when you're hurting or lonely or agitated or just facing troubles, just in the human realm, where do you want most to be when life is tough? Not at your office, not on the road sleeping in someone else's guest room, not out with your friends. Where do you want to be when life is at its toughest? You want to be at home, don't you? People want to die at home. Because it's familiar, it's comfortable, it's safe. And we all understand that. If we must suffer through the difficulties of this world, we will suffer through them best at home, in our own dwelling place. And Moses says God is like that. God is like that. Sometimes he allows us to suffer. Sometimes for wise, loving purposes, he permits grief and sickness and uncertainty and hurt. Sometimes he doesn't bring us in out of the storm before we catch cold. But once we catch cold, once we're in the middle of the difficulty, isn't he the best place to seek comfort? Yes, our physical homes are good. But God can be a home for us. That's even better than our physical homes. This must have been precious to Israel. You remember, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and so they had tents, but they didn't really have homes like we do. And even their tents were set up in different places every day. They, they didn't have a home to go to yet. And they're about to go across the Jordan, and they're about to build homes. They're about to inhabit homes that others have built and that God has prepared for them. But what God is saying is, when you're in difficulty, when you're in trouble, you know what's even better than those homes that I'm about to give you? That I myself am a home. The eternal God is a dwelling place. And shouldn't the struggling Christian want more than anything else to be at home with God? Isn't he like home for those who need comfort and healing and compassion? He is, isn't he? The eternal God is a dwelling place. He is a shelter from the storm and he's a warm, safe 
home to which we may retreat when we've gotten caught up in it. Seems obvious, doesn't it, that every Christian would run to God for solace in times of trial. That fleeing to God when we're in trouble would be as instinctive to us as going home when we're sick. But some of us don't know how to go home when we're sick, do we? We Just press on through it. And we're like that spiritually. Moses reminded the Israelites that God is a dwelling place that they needed to find their home in Him. And I'm reminding you of it this morning because we're so prone to forget. We're so prone to struggle on in our own strength. We're so prone to just try to suck it up and grit our teeth and pretend that we have everything under control. No, said Moses to the Israelites, you're going to face trials. You're going to be wounded in the fray. And when you are, you need to go home. And your home, your dwelling place, is in God. Then there's a third picture to which the words dwelling place give rise in my mind. Not only shelter and comfort, but also just plain old rest. The eternal God is a dwelling place. He is, like our dwelling places, our rest. Sometimes the challenges of the day leave you not feeling wounded or afraid or broken or sick, but just tired, bedraggled, worn out. Again, like these Israelites, wandering through the wilderness each day, worn out when the sun set. And where do you go to find rest at the end of the day? Where do you go when you're tired? Again, you go to your dwelling place, don't you? You go to your home, to your fireplace, to your couch, to your bed. And there you take refuge and repose and rest. That's what Israel must have wanted more than anything else after 40 years of wandering. Rest. Let's let's finally get over so that we can stop moving and just rest. And they would have their physical rest in the promised land, but even more God was to be their rest. God was to be their dwelling place. God was the one who could give them ultimate rest. And what Moses would have us understand as we read this passage thousands of years later is that God can be that kind of rest, that kind of home, that kind of dwelling place for us. Your daily time with the Lord, for instance, can be like coming home at the end of a long day's toil and breathing deeply, and sitting down to rest and to clear your mind. And the Lord's day is given to us once a week, a whole day retreating to God like a dwelling place. After the long week of toil and weariness, we come to God and we rest. So in all these ways, the eternal God is a dwelling place. He's a shelter into which we may run, seeking refuge from life's storms, He's our place of comfort to which we retreat after being caught out in those storms. And he is our haven of rest to which we come for repose when we are worn out by life's trials and by its toils. So then, two truths that will help us cope with our trials. The first is that our God is eternal. He was God long before our troubles began and he will be God long after they are over. The second truth is that our God is a dwelling place. He is a haven, a shelter, a home for his people. And then thirdly and finally, underneath are the everlasting arms. Underneath 
are the everlasting arms. I love that phrase. That's why I've been sharing this verse with people for the last months. That's why I picked this passage to preach from this morning. What a beautiful picture it is. A father with his arms underneath his child. Isn't that what children want most? A mother or a father to hold them when they're worried, when they're uncertain? If they can just be in mom or dad's arms and their arms are underneath, all is well. And that's the picture of God and his children. God does not have literal arms. You understand, of course, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But this is a picture of God's care for his people. Underneath are the everlasting arms. When I read this verse, one of the things that comes to my mind most readily is myself on the airplane. I've told some of you before, I don't mind flying, but I don't particularly like takeoff. Because it always occurs to me, there is no way that the physics, the laws of physics should work, that this huge bucket of metal should be able to lift off the ground and stay off the ground and fly. Those thoughts go through my mind every time the plane begins to go down that runway. And I hold on to my seat and I pretend like I'm just listening to my music, but really inside I'm saying, God, you've got to hold this plane up. The only way this is going to work is if underneath are your everlasting arms. You see? Now, I really know that the laws of physics that God has created hold the plane up as well. But it's also true. If that plane's going to fly, if the laws of physics are going to work today, if nothing is going to go haywire, God's arms are going to have to be underneath that plane. And that's what I ask. God, put your arms under this plane. That's a small example. It's somewhat of a humorous example. But that's true in every area of uncertainty in our lives, isn't it? In every area in our lives, if we are to fly, if we are to survive, if we are to go forward with the Lord, then it must be so that underneath are the everlasting arms. And they are. Haven't you seen that to be true? Can you think of specific instances in your life that you could share in a testimony time where you knew that God was bearing you up, that his arms were underneath you, holding you up so that you didn't crumble and fall. Haven't you seen that? Haven't you known that experience? Maybe you didn't think of it in terms of this verse, but you knew somehow God is upholding this thing. Somehow God has this in his hands. And let me tell you that the arms of God, the everlasting arms of God are underneath you even when you don't perceive it. Even when you aren't crying out to him for help like you should. Now, I've been preaching this sermon and I wrote part of it earlier in the week and I wrote part of it later in the week. Um, And in between the early and the late parts, I've been fighting and battling with my tax paperwork. And it's been really horrific and frightening and troubling for me and I think all is well so you don't have to worry about me Um, but I'm just saying to you that I've been stressed this week like never before and I wrote half of this sermon before I really understood how stressed I was going to be even this morning and it's amazing as I read it how what I wrote two days ago is speaking to me in ways that I had no idea that it needed to And through this time of wrestling, God 
has been upholding me, even though I've been stressed and worried and haven't been calling out to him like I should and haven't been seeking him about this difficulty like I should and haven't been resting like I should and haven't been fleeing in from the storm like I should and haven't been doing the things that I've been saying that we must do in these last 30 minutes. And yet I know that in spite of all of that, even when I didn't realize it or seek it or think about it, underneath, Still were the everlasting arms. I have no doubt about that at all. That God has upheld me in these days. And that is true of you as well. Even when you don't realize it. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Now let me say two things about these arms before we close. First of all, note well that they are everlasting. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. It's like Moses wants us to make sure we don't miss this point about the eternality of God. The arms are everlasting. They are not only beneath you now, but they were beneath you before you ever knew God. Knew to cry out to Him. Knew to seek refuge in truths like these. Even then, the everlasting arms were beneath you. And if you are his child, if you take refuge in those arms, they will be beneath you. From everlasting to everlasting. Not just in this life, not just for trials now, but forever. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, Paul says, we of all men are most to be pitied. If we just hope in God's everlasting arms for these three score years and ten in this world. But that's not the case, is it? We not only have arms beneath us now, but arms that are beneath us from everlasting to everlasting. That can be a great reminder when all around your soul gives way. Someday in heaven, you will experience this and sense it and know it in ways that you never have before. Even then... Even in heaven, when you are the spirit of the righteous made perfect, even in the new heavens and the new earth, when you have your new glorified body that is completely without sin and without decay, even then you won't live in your own strength. Even then, his arms will be beneath you. They are everlasting arms, always upholding his people. And then I want you to notice, secondly, before we finish, that at the end of the everlasting arms are nail-pierced hands. We've talked a lot about God's mercy when we're struggling with sickness and pain and worry and uncertainty and so on. And in some ways, it's easy to believe that God would put his arms beneath us and uphold us then. But what if the thing that I'm struggling with, what if the storm that I'm in is of my own making? What if the thing I'm wrestling with is not just uncertainty and fear, not just what's out there, but what's in here? What if I'm struggling with sin? What if I'm struggling with obedience? What if I'm struggling to do the things that I'm supposed to do? Maybe God doesn't want to uphold the likes of me. Maybe this promise isn't for me. Maybe the everlasting arms don't go beneath people who are sinners. Well, don't take sin lightly. God is displeased with it. 
But I want you to remember, if your struggle is sin this morning, the hands at the end of the everlasting arms. I want you to see the nail prints in them and remember that this Jesus, even when you sinned and actually because you sinned, stretched out his everlasting arms and allowed himself to be nailed to the cross so that when we repent, we can be forgiven and those arms can embrace us as a child of the King. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms.